Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1227, with guest Tim Ward. Recorded Friday, November 20th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's time for .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And it's Richard Campbell. And uh, Richard's still... In his makeshift, uh, still in your makeshift recording setup there. Yeah, well, you know, the magic of time shifting. This is probably, this is the first time we're trying to record from this particular rig. In fact, I'm so nervous about it working properly, I've wired two microphones to myself. <laughs> but I stuck up some baffles and things to try and keep it from echoing too much. Yeah. But if anybody remembers from the last time I had a flood, and I'm really sad to be <laughs> able to say the last time I had a flood. Yeah. Well, um, there are going to be dog issues, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. And uh, the Packers are still here. So the insurance companies brought in people who are basically cleaning out my entire basement. Right. And so I have let them know I'm recording, but you never know when they're going to appear. So do me a favor. If there's a bear, if a bear comes into your backyard and yeah. uh, the dog goes crazy, let's leave that in. Because <laughs> I think people would want to hear that. The, bo- the dog has very distinct barks. I can usually tell what's in the backyard by the bark. Oh, isn't that funny? Yeah, you know, there's there's sort of a bark for for squirrel and a bark for for raccoon. The the bark for bear is big squirrel, big big squirrel. <laughs> what the heck is that? <laughs> that is a big squirrel. All no, right, it's it's a squirrel. It climbs trees. <laughs> yeah, and it's got a skin problem or something. <laughs> something. All right, well, roll the music because I got something good for a better no framework today. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Our good old friend Sahil Malik. He has written an article for Code Magazine uh, uh, all about the good parts of TypeScript. And it's called Uh -uh. TypeScript, the best way to write JavaScript. And I've been looking for an article like this that sort of addresses my individual particular boogums about JavaScript and and what we can do about it with TypeScript, you know, because it it is sort of like a just use TypeScript is what you hear all the time, you know, without really understanding. Without the why. Without the why, yeah. So Sahil goes through the why. And if you go to uh, bit.ly slash TypeScript rocks, and this article is great. Uh, He didn't have a date on it, so I didn't really know how old it was. So I wrote to him, I emailed him and I asked him, it's only a couple, well, it's only a month old or so. But then he said, he also published a more detailed version of this and JavaScript in general on Udemy, which is a video course place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We've had some of the Udemy guys on. So I, I'm linking to that too, bit.ly slash Sahil TS video. And he also said you could use the coupon 
.net rocks, D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S, for a 50% discount. So that's very cool, Sahil. Um, for example, one of the things in this article he talks about is the advantage of being able to strongly type HTML elements. Right. Is that now you can get rich coding help when authoring TypeScript. So he's got, for example, the HTML canvas element is somewhat new, and he didn't realize that you could easily convert the canvas data into a data URL and stick on an image very easily. But hmm. TypeScript's IntelliSense teaches you as you go along. And he scored it sort of has this, oh, did you mean, you know, that you can turn this into a, uh, uh, you know, a data URL so that the IntelliSense is just helping him find new elements that wouldn't necessarily, he wouldn't necessarily have found otherwise. It's something you don't think about. You think of strong typing for JavaScript, which, you know, and who needs that? I know all about JavaScript, but yeah, but what about all of the DOM stuff? I love your little inner programmer that came out there. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Move. <laughs> Nick Burns, your com- company's computer guy. Move. <laughs> Move. So, yeah. So, th- that's really cool. And there's tons of little tips and things about it in this article. So, The good. JavaScript isn't object-oriented. It's weird-oriented. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks, Sahil. That was a, that's a great article. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And uh, I haven't checked out your Udemy uh, class, but I, I will. So thanks. Awesome. Bit.ly slash TypeScript rocks. TypeScript rocks. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1067, the one we did with Itamar Sinhershko, where we were talking about search, uh, specifically Lucene and Elasticsearch. And I've been reading, meaning to read this comment for a while because mm. Martin says, Elasticsearch is really simple. And I got a bit frustrated by listening to this because I don't think it came through as simple. It's just a search engine which can scale to run on multiple machines on your local network or in the cloud. You submit data to it which you want to make searchable using a REST API, and you query for that data using the same API. Hmm. The main benefit over SQL is good flexibility, better scale-out functionality, and the free price. Most of the problems solved with Elasticsearch could in theory be solved with SQL as well, but not as easily since it's not optimized for that use case. Mm -hmm. The fact that Elasticsearch uses Lucene is just an implementation detail. This abstraction leaks a bit because some of the syntax you use when querying is the same as Lucene, but again, it's just an implementation detail. Mm. In theory, you could treat it as a database, but you should not because it has bugs which cause it to lose data. So store your data somewhere else. This is just for searching. Mm -hmm. In the future, when and if it gets more robust, you could use it as a single source of the truth. But it's nowhere near as robust as Microsoft SQL, which rarely goes corrupt and has point in time recovery and so on. Mm -hmm. There are native clients for many programming languages, such as Java and .NET, if you don't want to write the code to perform the HTTP request yourself. And okay. I remember this that show's a year old now, but I remember seeing this comment when it came out. And, yeah, you know, we didn't emphasize this part enough, mm-hmm. that Elasticsearch is just one of those very simple things to put out there. Uh, and it'll make your life better if you're trying to solve your search problem. And I'm sure we're going to talk about search some more. So, Martin, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you guys comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can tweet us. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We love tweets. Yeah, one one thing about that uh, Elasticsearch, I remember that show, and is that it's not without its critics and its problems also. So, you know, I, I don't want to give the listeners the impression that, you know, 
it it is simply just this high level thing that you just throw stuff at and it sticks and it works. Um, yeah, there there are some issues, so just you know, be diligent. Nothing's free. Nothing's really. free. Yeah. Read it. Yep. Check it. Learn it. Yeah. Do Love your own it. research. <laughs> yep. All Absolutely. Right. And that brings us to Tim Ward. Tim is an engineer at Clued In, a company out of Denmark. He spent 10 years as a software engineer focusing on search and graph technologies. Originally from Australia, he now lives in Denmark with his wife and dog, a dog that looks like Chewbacca from Star Wars. Wow. Does he walk on his hind legs like Chewy? No? Maybe. How's he with a crossbow? Sometimes forced. <laughs> I love this. He says he now lives in Denmark with his wife and dog that looks like Chewbacca from Star Wars. The dog that is. Not, nice. Not yeah, you, you need to be clear on that one. Disambiguation. Oh, yeah. Let's not misplace any modifiers. <laughs> there will be consequences. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So I think Clued In might have been one of my better known frameworks back in the day or maybe recently. I can't remember, but just in case people aren't clued in, tell us what it's all about. Yeah, sure. And we, I think the, the point about uh, Elasticsearch as well, I'd love to touch on that as well at some point. But Actually, why, essentially- don't, why don't you do that first? We'll get that out of the way. Yes. So, I mean, I've been a long-time user of Elasticsearch, and as uh, my, I guess, profile mentioned, I've worked uh, with search technologies most of my career, including uh, Lucene and and Solar. I can only speak fantastic words about Elasticsearch. Okay. It's, I, I would say that there is really no database out there and... I can tell I've been in Copenhagen long enough because I'm not saying database anymore, but um, <laughs> there really is no database out there that I would recommend anyone just throw anything into. And I think there was, this was something that maybe the NoSQL movement gave us this impression that it was safe to do this. Hmm. And then enough of us kind of tried it out in production and then got stung by it and then realized everything at the end of the day needs a lot of thought and a lot of planning to do right. Right. A search especially, it seems. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about solving, you know, search for different languages, I mean, when you start to go into the, the Japanese and the Chinese languages and even oh, the, the, oh, it gets tricky. And mm. that's when your planning really kind of comes to, to help you out at that point. But the reason I thought I'd, I, I really wanted to touch on that is because we're using a lot of these different stacks at Clued In. Mm-hmm. And essentially what we're doing at Clued In is, um, that we just use so many of these uh, productivity tools today to chat, to project manage, to to do lists for mail, and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what we do is we just connect into all of these different systems. We run a little bit of intelligence over it, and then we just deploy it to the, all the employees in, in a company, so they can kind of figure out what's going on at work. Okay, so let's back up and give us give us the big picture of Clued In. Sure. I mean, you so, sort of touched on it there, but let's go even bigger. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the reason that we started Clued In grew out of this frustration of really kind of not knowing what's happening at work. You know, what projects are running, how are they going, you know, it, why was that code broken and it was affecting my project. So, I would have liked to have known these things kind of before they happened. And so, this really caused us to kind of look at the problem realistically and say, well, I mean, 
isn't it more about just being in the know, you kind of like being left in the loop and given the right information you need to do your work properly? And this is really where it's spawned from. And taking our experience in search and graph technologies, it felt like this perfect match of, you know, combining graphs to kind of map relationships of things that happen in the company while still allowing you to search across all the different tools you, you want in one single place. And when you say all the tools you want, does that mean like some people are using uh, Google Docs and another group is using Office 365 and you have these disparate sets of data that you want to search across? Do you, you do that? Totally. I mean, SharePoint, Office 365, Google, Yammer. I, I, you, I think you'll find that a lot of companies, what they do is they, they kind of base themselves of a core stack. And that's typically Microsoft with Office 365 or it might be Google for work. But guess what? These kind of tools, they don't offer everything you need. They, you don't have project management. Um, some have chat, but, you know, people are moving on to tools like Slack and and Atlassian tools, HipChat, and things yeah. like this. And, I'm and it looking, just ends I'm, up with a mess. I'm looking at your integrations page now. Asana, Box.net, Dropbox, Evernote, FileShare, GitHub, Google Analytics, Google Drive, Jira, Microsoft Dynamics, Office 365, Gmail, Google Calendar, Pivotal Tracker, Salesforce, Slack, Azure Active Directory, SharePoint, TeamCity, Team Foundation Server, Trello, User Voice, and Zendesk. And that was all in one breath. Well done. Wow. <laughs> That's Although it looks like some of these are still works in progress, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of this is about testing the waters and, and really where our customers are feeling the most pain. Mm. And I think the, the places that we've tried to kind of target first are those common use cases where I start kind of a, I don't know, like a sales deck on my local computer, and then I upload it to SharePoint, and hey, guess what? My friend doesn't have access to that SharePoint, so I give him a link on Dropbox, and hey, he's not using Dropbox, <laughs> so I install Box.net and do the same, oh, and then you that know, was all in one breath as well. You're speaking my language, because this <laughs> is the kind of pain that I deal with daily. Yeah. And, yep. you know, and to tell you the truth, it's not pain until you start getting successful and you start having a lot more people to deal with, Right. Exactly. I mean, you can handle this with, you know, a handful of people, small team, it's okay. But, you know, when you're talking 20, 30, 40 people, good Lord, it just amplifies totally. itself. Completely. And what we tried to do very early on, I mean, we've, we've been running for about uh, 11 months now, and we just tried to cause the, the problem internally, even though we were only five people at the time. I mean, we're project managing in Asana, and some of us are doing it in Pivotal Tracker, and we're just trying to cause this chaos for ourselves to actually, <laughs> at the end of the day, see if we've sold something. No one's lost their hair yet. You're, yeah, so more chaos. We're, we need to do testing. More chaos. Exactly. Controlled right. chaos, I like to call it. So what are the kind, you know, after you wire up all of these services, which I imagine is probably going to be easy, but also maybe you know, a little time consuming up in the front. But once you wire these things up, what are the kinds of things that you can do? I mean, the, the immediate pain that we wanted to relieve was something that, that was kind of simple and, and in our nature to do was just allow you to search across all of those different things in one place. So you search for a presentation deck, let's just call it investment pitch deck, and guess what? You get results from SharePoint, you get results from Slack, you get results from Box.net. Um, that was kind of the, the immediate goal. 
Um, but then this whole idea of keeping in the loop and, and keeping on top of things came in. And that's where we really started to utilize some of these features in Elasticsearch yeah. where we were able to kind of um, what they call percolation, start to, um, as soon as new documents start coming in, it runs these matches over, you know, what people are watching and it just notifies people, hey, there's a new update to the investment deck or, hey, there's a new kind of thing that you might be interested in. So, it was kind of twofold. Wow. So, look at what people have already worked on and then look at what's coming in and think maybe they need to know about that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we can use this information to really start building, you know, profiles for users on what they're good at, their skill sets. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got a LinkedIn profile. And on that, I'm the number one person in Denmark at eggs. Eggs? Eggs. I've also got, <laughs> check it out. I've got potty training. I've got fear of flying. I've got <laughs> ventriloquism. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have all these skills, but unfortunately, I don't have them. But we can we can actually start to kind of build these real-life profiles for you based off the actual work that you do internally, which I think is pretty cool. All right. So, you are using C-sharp and .NET predominantly, but you also have these other technologies and stuff that aren't uh, on the development side. On the C-sharp side, um, I'm thinking, what, ASP.NET, MVC? What, what exactly is that? We are kind of close to the bleeding edge. We haven't moved on to the, the ASP.NET 5 stuff, but we're very close. We're using the ASP.NET Web uh, API um, using a self-host. So, we're using Owen as our, as our boot stack. Yeah. And really, when we start looking at the, uh, you know, even the, the Connect um, uh, event that was recently, just yesterday, I think, um, you know, for us to move into that ASP.NET 5 paradigm of how to boot up on a light stack, it's really, it would be close to a few days of work for us. So, we're using that. We are using technologies like SignalR for our push engines and our web sockets. Nice. So, we're kind of, kind of going all over the place. I guess this is that idea of a polyglot architecture or polyglot persistence gone mad. Right. And RabbitMQ <laughs> and Redis, also Neo4j. Yeah, I mean, I I know Fowler coined this term, you know, many years ago, and don't we all look back at the stuff he says and it's like, man, why can't I say that stuff? But uh, yeah, I mean, we're using RabbitMQ as a as our message bus to kind of scale out the system. I mean, the whole clued-in engine at the back. All we're really doing is whenever we need to talk to services, we just put a message on the queue and we can have as many consumers as we want on the other end. Um, The main one I wanted to to focus on today is is actually our graph store in Neo4j. And I know that you've actually had uh, Tatham on the show before from Australia. And at this point, probably thinking, what's with these Australians and and graph databases? Uh, (laughs) We're hooked. Oh, that's all I can say. Well, you know, if you want a, a graph database that works and sort of powers the whole world, think about the internet. I mean, it's sort of a big graph, isn't it? It is, definitely. Yeah. And I I think uh, Tathan's uh, presentation of it was just so good as like an introduction to get people on it. I'd love to focus on kind of the, you know, what happens when you actually put this thing into production? You know, we've had it running for a while. We've got the battle scars to show for it, and you know, let's let's just kind of get some ideas of of what is it like to scale it to these millions and millions of numbers, these big numbers. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. 
Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. So what are you storing in Neo4j? So, I mean, the typical Neo4j is nodes and relationships, just as kind of a reminder. And those relationships typically are things like, you know, you're author of, you're a member of, you like this. Um, And you can think of these nodes as pretty typical documents that you, you know, you would have had in Elasticsearch or MongoDB or, or Lucene or things like this. Um, and so that's typically, you know, how we're structuring things in the system. Um, and the kind of things that we're actually storing in Neo4j, well, think about your company, think about your workplace. And uh, you've got things like documents, you've got people, you've got projects, mm. you've got products. And one of the things that Neo4j gives us is this handy labeling system where we can just start to stamp these nodes with, you know, what actually are you? And you can actually stamp it with as many labels as you really want. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting things you can actually do there with, with inheritance of, of nodes as well, where you can, you know, stamp things with these inheritance chains and some really cool things we've been able to do with it there. So I got a question. Do you do any caching of data? Like one of the, one of the things with uh, Slack, for example, is that after a certain number of days or whatever, the data just sort of goes away. And I guess you can pay to get, you know, a complete history or whatever. But do you do any caching of messages or or anything that just sort of flows off? Or are you sort of at the mercy of the APIs of the the integrators? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the way that the the Cluding goes and grabs this data is is in both a pull and a push model. And when you start to kind of pull in your different systems, that's very much a kind of a, hey, API, go and grab me everything I can get up to now. Um, and that's kind of like a big chunky call that we do to, to those APIs. Mm. Um, fortunately, most of these, these endpoints, they're very, very good on telling you when you've hit your limits and when you're throttled. Right. And they give really good mechanisms of, of how to be able to actually grab these uh, 429 status codes and, and treat them and kind of, you know, tone down the number of queries that you're doing. Yep. But yep. then after that, a lot of these different APIs offer a, a kind of a push model, a web, like a web hook, um, where they literally just fire hose all their new data out to everyone and you've just got to listen to it. Um, you can put filters on it as well, such as I only want to listen to, you know, customers A, B, and C. Yeah. And this, this helps us with kind of uh, not putting too much load on these third parties all the time. So what are you using for cloud providers? Are you using Azure, Amazon, a mixture, Google? I am a long-time AWS user. So we've been using Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. We've got about 22 servers. Sometimes we have to, you know, elastic boost it up to about 26. Um, and 
the reason that we've kind of got so many is also to do with this kind of polyglot architecture we have. Mm. I mean, you take RabbitMQ, you take Neo4j, you take the Elasticsearch or the Elk stack, they're calling it, mm. um, as it's got Elasticsearch, Logstash, and, and Kibana. You, then you take Redis, then you take SQL Server. So, that's, that's mm. kind of a lot of different technologies, but you also have to run them in kind of like a, a clustered high availability mode. Mm. And most of them recommend at least a minimum of two and uh, if you can go with three, that's kind of great because there's all these mechanisms that these uh, technologies have with kind of electing who's the master and sometimes they need even or odd nodes to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. And ha- have you looked at any of the platform as a service stuff on Azure? Doesn't that appeal to you? or? I mean, the natural choice for us is to go with Azure. I mean, just the deployment stack that, that we've got here locally. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a .NET shop. Yeah. Um, and every now and then we, we break out into F sharp, but I mean, that's still, we're still on the .NET stack. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, um, it really came down to our previous experience. Gotcha. Um, and I, w- I would definitely say that Moving into the cloud is not something that should necessarily be done lightly. Yeah. I mean, there are um, there are you know tools and Visual Studio plugins and and even out of the box now, just the deployment story to mm. to Azure is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. The the kind of things I'm talking about is more about the costs, mm-hmm. and there's this really good kind of analogy to to always come back to, which is smart data is expensive. And dumb data is super cheap. Mm-hmm. Right. And your dumb data is your dumping files to be stored, kind of like a blob store you could, you could think of. Yeah. Fantastically cheap. I would always go to, to the cloud for that. And for even compute um, these days, yeah, once again, it's just so cheap to have these compute cycles that you just spin up and, and spin down. Right. Um, but once you start to add these kind of, handy functionalities like full text querying, graph databases, mm. um, you know, elastic uh, in-memory uh, key value stores like Redis, mm-hmm. and then relational stores like SQL Server, you start to kind of re- require these more expensive uh, boxes to handle that, right. kind of, um, that kind of load. Uh, using Docker? Yeah, and, and one of the things around uh, Neo4j is it comes out of the box with a Docker image, which mm. is fantastic. It's, yeah. it's also the official image. And I mean, I can't speak highly enough of Docker. Um, the, just the ability to build your Docker templates and just replay them yeah. um, in this kind of lightweight mode. And it's kind of weird when you use it for the first time and you realize, where's all the rest of my processes? Where are they? Right they're, they're missing. <laughs> I'm missing and my ceremony. Yeah. There's not enough exactly. dogma. Exactly. <laughs> Please give me more. Exe, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty much for all of these stacks, we're lucky enough that there are official Docker images for it. And um, it's kind of one of those technologies where you ha- it's hard to kind of understand how you did it before. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as for scaling Neo4j in the, in the cloud, um, they, like most of the other data stores, they offer clustering and they offer high availability. Mm-hmm. And it's important to kind of mention that there's three different types that they offer. And one is the kind of for millions of, of uh, objects. 
the next one's for billions and the next one's for kablillions. Um, <laughs> I just made up Everybody that likes a good kablillion here and there. It's just a lot, yeah. A kabillion like here, a kabillion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> <laughs> and all of them kind of have their own kind of uh, eccentrics um, to them to figure them out. The first level is, is all about um, high availability. So you've got typically one write node and you've got two read nodes. And right. they all talk to themselves. And, and the, the Neo4j guide to get this up and running is super dead simple. And... Um, the important thing to note in this is that just because you've got three boxes now, um, this is not necessarily going to make your system a lot faster to write to. <laughs> After all, you've only got one write. Yeah. This is more just about, hey, there's a bit of fallback and safety there that if one of these uh, machines goes down, the others are going to do this work to, to, to become a master. Wow, okay. The next one is, uh, I, I guess, kind of... a. It's an interim step, but it's kind of cheating, I guess you could say. It's the same type of thing. Neo4j, they, they call it cache sharding. Mm -hmm. Once again, um, too much time in Denmark, I would usually say cache sharding, but <laughs> I'm, I'm here now. Um, and, and, and what it does is all they recommend is to use sticky sessions at your load balancers to try and move your customers off to the same Neo4j clusters. So they kind of hit right. the cache more often. Yeah. And that's a kind of a cool trick. Um, that only gets you so far. You then have to move into um, where we're at, which is called domain sharding. And that's really where, you know, your application starts to um, take control of the data stores. And I know you guys have talked about this before where, you know, we're moving from a little bit from this, oh, DB administrators uh, maybe aren't getting as much love with these new systems and it's more yeah. moved into the dev role. Yeah, sure has. And it's, it's really not changed with Neo4j and what essentially domain sharding is, is where you use part of your domain model to move customers onto different boxes. So you just set up multiple of these clusters, you give it an ID or a shard key, and then you just save that against your users that are signing up every day. Hey, you go to one, you go to two. Mm -hmm. you so go just to a three. round robin effect? You wouldn't do something like geolocation? People from the West Coast use this shard, East Coast use that shard? Yeah, this is so important. And I think this is also why a couple of people got stung uh, with these NoSQL databases very early on. Is mm -hmm. if you get this wrong, the amount of time you have to take to move or distribute that data onto new clusters right. that aren't necessarily weighted properly. Yeah, it's, it's super important. And right. we were really lucky. And that is because we have a really obvious domain shard and that is you know organizations right and we identify them with a good and that's of course pretty unique and so for the ability for us to kind of type organizations in any way well we don't really have that problem because it's a randomly generated good and there's no real waiting in that nice yeah and, and, and it's and it's effectively round robin every given organization is its own organization that's all there is to it you know, exactly. the, this is this load balancing problem is is challenging because you don't know what any given instance is going to demand for load, and you don't necessarily know you know how much 
given requests it's going to make. Like, round robin's not perfect either. There's no great, reliable, generic way to balance load. That's just sort of the, the go-to because there, it requires less thinking up front. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we're using a, a, a load balancer called HAProxy. Um, it's open source. It's amazingly configurable. Um, and it's, it's famous yeah, we are, in, the, in, the, in it, the open source world. It's fantastic. I mean, this, if you want to talk about software that never goes down, yeah. it's got to be a load balancer. And this is uh, something that just stands up to that. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to do a clued in search across all my data properties for jokes that work. <laughs> I mean, take a look here. Nothing found. Hmm. There's, oh, there's one. Oh, yeah, I did. I told this joke back in August on Slack. There was, seems like a lot of activity around it. Let me look at, oh, looks like everyone left the channel. <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. But clued in really helped me there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we could solve that for you. <laughs> well, actually, it's time to give away a Music to Code by Music collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you about it first. Music to Code by is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus, scientifically designed, I might add. Mm. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being much more productive with music to code by, so check out what all the fuss is about. There's nine tracks available now at mtcb.pwop.com. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Tim O'Connell. Ah, congratulations, yeah. Tim. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, Tim. And just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Tim O'Connell has won that Music to Code by complete nine-track collection. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December... Hey, it's December. It's December. Are we giving away now? Pretty soon. Nope. Not this show, sorry. Pretty we soon. Give, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And, of course, it's your turn now, Tim. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Well, this one is easy because I've wanted one of these for so long. And that, I don't know how legal this is. That's always good to start with a sentence like <laughs> that. But <clears throat> I would love a main machine. You know those oh, old yeah. retro, yeah, a cabinet just with, you know, 500 games, Donkey Kong, 1942. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would love that too. Oh, man. Yeah. I know people that build them. So, you know, yeah. you build your own console kind of thing. Because they do have the controllers that are sort of main, you know, multi-arcade controllers. Yeah. That have everything, you know, the slider ball, lots of buttons and triggers and stuff. Yeah. Love it. Defender. Defender. Yeah, Missile Command. <laughs> missile Command. <laughs> We're old. We're old. Yeah, just yeah let's not, I was just about to say, let's not go that far back. <laughs> I guess that new Star Wars game is pretty awesome. Have you played it? Battlefield? Yeah. Battlefront. Battle, Battlefront. Battlefront, You know what? Yes. I, uh, I'm the kind of guy that uh, I, I can't play games anymore unless they're kind of old arcade games. Yeah. Nice. And so I could play it for five minutes and then I would 
I, I, I just shouldn't play them because I can't give the developers who made it the glory that they deserve. <laughs> My problem is that I, if I'm going to invest brain power in something to do with a computer, I'm going to make it work for me. You know, like I, I can't see, like, you know, Richard, he's amazing. I don't know how you do it, Richard, but the brain power you've put into the Kerbal Space Program is just astounding to me. Well, yeah, you, now you've finally seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I did a little demo for my friend the other day on an airplane. And this, this is a game. He's like calculating trajectories and stuff. <laughs> he gets out the, his slide rule. <laughs> I did all the Delta V calculations in my head. It went, da, 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 da. there we go. Okay, yeah, go. it should be about that. <laughs> He's like right on. It's crazy. All right. Well, anyway, um, let's, let's get back to uh, what we were talking about here. You know what I'm trying to figure out? Tim, is just how many storage mechanisms you have here. I mean, Elasticsearch, okay, well, that's really just for search, but yes. Neo4j, all right, you're storing the graph. I mean, Redis is a, a key-value pair store. I hear there's some SQL in there somewhere as well. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, I, I've been told the same thing many to- many times, but I, I guess it all comes back to this, this thing I've always learned over my career, which is there's always the right tool for the right job. Right. And you can force Neo4j to do, you know, full text querying, but you just, it's got Lucene underneath under all, after all. But you're just not going to get, you know, the same experience that you would want with with Elasticsearch. Right. And so, you're right. We kind of, we store the same thing about five times, but in different formats. Mm, And it's all to do the right job in the right way. So, if we're doing things like we want to find out, you know, what do you and I have in common? I mean, that sounds like something that a path query or a graph database would be really good at. Mm, Right. I mean, SQL Server, for example, the experience that I have had in the past in building graph databases has always been actually kind of like a triple store on top of SQL Server. And the performance is just fantastic. Right. But when you start to do these kind of path queries, you realize that a triple store is not going to do that for you. And the way that we, uh, of course, utilize Neo4j is for that. And pretty much only that. That's the interesting thing. Um, Elasticsearch gets a lot of love when we start to try and figure out some some information or some insights about what we're pulling from these different systems. I mean, we're doing things like fuzzy fuzzy matching and um, on names. So when I go search for Carl in Clued In, if there's a C Franklin in Slack and a Carl Franklin in Dropbox, we're doing all this magic to say, hey, that's actually the same person. Oh, good. Right. So when you search for yourself in include in, you don't get 15 Carls. I mean, that would be an interesting world if there was 15 Carls. No, <laughs> no, but no, it wouldn't really. No. At some point, you said a Carl bounty. Yeah, you know, right. How many uh, Carls is it? Having need? all these identities to manage, and in particular, the security around that must be a challenge and and I probably mostly on the front end when you're doing a new integration just trying to make sure that the API is rock solid has that been a challenge for you I mean definitely I mean from the front end and the back end um, yeah. just just from the front end just to figure out how to you know authenticate with all of these different systems right. I can tell you right now none of them do it in a standard way <laughs> 
uh, you've got pe- you've got companies like Slack that where it's just you you praise them just thank you for making that easy for me. But you've got some other tools where you know they may be on OAuth one or they need RSA keys to be passed through with them, right. and yeah. it it gets tricky on the on the back end. Of course, you've got five different data stores where you've got to manage security. I mean, after all, we're wanting to, we're running in this kind of multi-tenant environment where, you know, companies' data is actually stored within the same physical databases, but we have to do some security magic just to kind of make it so the application can never actually query any across different uh, companies. And I mean, that's something that out of all of those stacks, I would agree, I would say that SQL Server has always been the best at. I mean, you've got down to the row level mm. read and write field level permissions that you can you can you can put in. But with all of the others, you've kind of got these really disgusting choices to make, which is do you write security into the graph? Do you write it into your Elasticsearch documents? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I complicate sure. everything in the process. Exactly. And I mean, you, you take these big performance hits, but at the end of the day, for us, what's more important, security or performance? Yeah, security's not optional, right? It's like, yes, exactly. you have a lock on the door. That is the price of admission. Exactly. It's entry. Exactly. And so, the, the choice that you have is do it at write time or do it at read time. But the read time has its own problems, which is it's a dirty solution where when you get the documents out of the data store, you start to do things in memory. And the problem with that is that you can mess up counts and aggregations and you just null out your, your maybe your enumerable objects are just filled with nulls because you don't have those types of permissions. Right. So for all of the data stores, we made this kind of, you know, choice across all of them let's do it at right time and for neo4j there's actually some really interesting things you can do there um because out of the box you don't get security Hmm. you get network level security Mm -hmm. so your connection string is 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 hidden behind a basic authentication right um but when you're in the graph we talked about nodes and relationships before and essentially a graph is just a tree just with things pointing in the wrong directions that a tree would normally cater for. And what this allows us to do is we can actually start to use these relationships with directions on them to start putting hierarchy into the graph to say, hey, if you don't have access to read this folder, why would I even go and evaluate everything below it? Yeah. And we can start to optimize our queries for this. And that brings up another interesting idea, which is, are there any tools that we might have overlooked on their own merits, but maybe combined with other tools that are now aggregated in the graph, you know, by Cluedin, they become more compelling? I mean, the the instant feedback we've had from our customers so far is is just simple things like a unified view of a customer. You know, right. take some like da- let's take a Danish uh, invention, Lego, which I'm sure we can all relate to. And if I ever wanted to see, hey, what relationship do we have with Lego? 
oh, we've our marketing team has uh, tweeted to them and uh, we've actually sold to them already and that's in our dynamic CRM system. Yeah. And guess what? The developers are talking about a new feature uh, specifically for Lego on Slack yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah I get yeah. it. You sure. get all those things together in one place. Oh, and you can also tell where, you know, there might be groups uh, going. I don't know how much you can look into what, you know, what other people are doing. I guess they have to be public forums or public channels on Slack, but you can find groups that are maybe not getting it or fragmenting things because they don't have that unified view. They're going off and reinventing the wheel in this other little pocket of technology. Exactly. I mean, this tool just full stop is about letting employees know what's going on. And I think what we're trying to challenge with this tool a little bit is, do we have to close everything down so much? Um, is, there, is there merit in just having things potentially shared by default? Well, and that's, oh, man, you're, you're opening up a can of worms here because, you know, oh, yeah. I, I, I hear this all the time. Our company doesn't use Slack because they don't, you know, even if they're private invite only channels, they just have this fear that, you know, the, the customer might someday be, you know, exposed to the back channel discussions we had about them, which, you know, may include joking around or this and that. And, oh, yeah, it would be terrible for our company. So we don't it's even the use same it. same issue with email, though, right? I mean, and that happens all the time. It happens email all the time. Email ends up in discovery for some legal thing, and every nasty thing you've ever said about your customer is revealed. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. just don't be a jerk in the first place. And then you're <laughs> don't, yeah, don't write anything down. You're not prepared to defend at some point in your yeah. life. That should be our new byline. Don't be a jerk. Don't be there a jerk. Do you you know, know what it is? Even, it's not even don't be evil. It's just don't be an don't asshole. Be jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I yeah. think uh, think about something in email that is kind of already there that helps us, you know, l get rid of the junk. And that's spam, right? Yeah. And the way that that works is that we typically use an algorithm like an Enbase, um, and there's some there's some new newer algorithms like a Forest um, algorithms that you can use to start kind of training your own data to figure out what's sensitive and what's not. Mm. And the great thing is that there's just so much open public data out there available to to companies these days that have qualified a lot of this stuff for us. Uh, it's, uh, for example, Enron have, uh, um, not that they have the best uh, history, but <laughs> they have- They have no history now. <laughs> they, they have released a, a 52 gigabyte file where they've just qualified all their mail with, this is sensitive, this is talking about salaries, this is talking about contracts. And we're actually using this internally to start filtering out stuff that could be a little bit sensitive for people. I'm thinking of you, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but I'm, I just like the idea of having a unifying tool that gauges the sensitivity level of, of any given resource. Like, that's a really interesting that's thought. That's a powerful tool. Um, I've also, I don't know if you've run across this product, but it's, it's part of the Office 365 suite. It's Delve. Yes. And, uh, and it's not, it sounds similar, although obviously it's a, it's a Microsoft product focused on, on Office 365. But one of the other things I've heard that we talked about this on Run As Radio. The creepiness factor. Mm. That it, the ability to make these connections every so, you know, on one hand, it's delightful. Hey, this is going on. Now you know about it. On the other hand, it's like, wow, I feel very watched. Yeah. Like is the, privacy a concern of your customers? 
Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the main feedback we've kind of had already is, what is this system actually going to do? What's it going to bring in? And that's why when you're adding integration integrations, you still have full control over what you actually want to bring in, whether that's labels in Gmail or folders in your mail or if you want to take the whole kit caboodle. And again, you know, you're only accessing things that you have access to. Exactly. You're, you can't just, you know, I can't just look into Richard's mailbox, for example. Exactly. I mean, I'll give you another classic example. If there's a if there's a document that maybe you have on SharePoint and for some unknown reason you have not shared it with Richard. If he saw that document include in, when he went to open it, he wouldn't be able to see it. Mm. He'd be visited with a nice login page, but I guess the interesting thing is for Richard to know, hey, there's a there's a document talking about a particular customer on SharePoint. Maybe I should talk to Carl and see if he'll yeah. share it with me. Right. Because a lot Why of the don't time I have access to that? Right. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I do think that there's an interesting line here. I mean, certainly, again, on the IT side, we deal with all enterprise data. You know, there's a, the company has a liability to it. So you know, part of this is just the basic: are we keeping track of things sufficiently to mitigate litigation around it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you also quickly run into when people are using company resources inappropriately. Uh, I, I recently worked with a customer where we, we were trying to, we're really looking for intrusion filtration. So not so much that you don't get, that, you know, you can't stop people from penetrating your network. But once they do, do you know they're there? So we're monitoring the traffic in detail inside the network and find out that, hey, one of our senior IT guys is running a BitTorrent site off the servers in the company. Yeah. Sounds like, like we've got a new provider to build. BitTorrent. Well, you, you, but you sort of get into this idea of as we start scrutinizing this, like, look, you should not, there are certain Slack messages you shouldn't be writing. There's certain emails you shouldn't be writing on the company email. And yeah. if we start indexing this stuff well so that we can share it well, that becomes immediately apparent. I think one of the things you run into with a tool like Clued In is people, we've always said, you know, business stuff on the business accounts, personal stuff on the personal account. Now we're actually able to scrutinize it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, this is, in the end of the day, we're trying to make companies work better. Right. And whether that's to do with, you know, getting all your dirty laundry out in front of everyone so we can just move on and and become like a more efficient company where knowledge, which in the past is a very th- hard thing to solve. Yeah. And knowledge management has kind of, you've got wikis and you've got uh, enterprise social networks and these things kind of tend to stick for a while, but they kind of end up dying as the new tool comes out. Well, that's exactly it, is we keep wanting to approach this from a, there's one place to put everything away, and that's also where you're on your best behavior, in in the one place. And reality is, it's many places. Exactly. I mean, we sat down here many times, and we thought, you know, what kind of things would you do at a company that you wouldn't want to surface? And it always came back to this, well, at probably shouldn't be doing that at work anyway. Right. And exactly knew- right. We've just been able to get away with it before, and now we can't. Well, that's, exactly. the, that's the way of the new world, isn't it? I mean, it, there's a less tolerance for BS. You know, you really actually have to be a good person if you want to get ahead. <laughs> it's going to show if you're not. That's true. And I'll tell you a funny anecdote about that. Uh, sentiment analysis is, of course, the, the kind of analysis of good and bad, you know, is, yep. is what we're writing about positive or negative. And 
very early on, we identified we kind of need this feature included. In. It would be nice to see what projects are kind of getting the green and what projects are getting the bad. And you know what the funny thing is? Everything comes out red. How often do you, do you kind of pick up a support case and, and, and it says, hi, guys, I found a bug. I'm still having a good day, but I hope you can fix it. No, I found no, a bug no. And it's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's swearing and it's negative. And we yeah. actually turned this off um, on purpose because, you know, being it's a, so negative. Being exactly. And part of, of you know, a place where you want to work is, 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 of course, a good culture where you see positive things happening in the workplace. And we just thought that, you know, seeing the reality of it sometimes might not be the best thing. Might actually make it worse. I mean, it's, I, I got two thoughts there. One is, isn't the only way we start speaking more positively to show that we're not and start pushing on it? And the other thought would be the bell curve. Well, let's consider this good because it's only a little negative. Mm, (laughs) And it doesn't get bad till it's like, did you actually tell him you were going to rip his head off? (laughs) (laughs) So I noticed that uh, as far as the cost, you say right on the homepage, it's 100% free until you know it's right. No credit card required. And so then going to the uh, pricing, that for a team, it's $9 per user per month, which is great and unlimited data. And then there's an on, uh, enterprise option, which you want people to contact you. That's great. But, and, and I, I am taking a look at all of these, uh, features of all, all this stuff. But one question I have is you still may incur costs with all of these integrations. You know, if you, I, I, I don't know if any of these integrations actually have costs to use the API. I haven't seen any that I can remember, but um, is that has that ever come back to bite anybody? Yeah, we're, we're lucky enough that none of the integrations that we provide um, have a cost. They are, of course, limited to some reasonable amounts, but we can kind of solve that at an application level where if we're, if we're hammering a third party too much, we really are told from that third party, hey, settle down and maybe don't call us as much. Mm. And uh, um, essentially, including at the end of the day is free. It's free for as long as you need it. Mm. And the storage that you get right now, it's actually, that's this compressed storage. So, when you think about it, if we go and grab a, a document from a PowerPoint presentation from Dropbox, it might be three three megabytes. Yeah. When we pull it over to our system and we store it in these five different databases, we're not storing the original file. We're yeah. storing things like the content and, and, and the metadata. And When you start to compress that, you suddenly realize that, Whoa, for 500 meg of, of space, that's something like huge amounts of documents that it'll actually get to. Yeah. Okay. Great. So that's a, it's a great philosophy. By the time you're benefiting from it, it's time to pay something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, I mean, I want 12 Ferraris. So I sure. think that's fair enough. <laughs> that's not too much. I to only ask, have 11 it? now. I need another one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, anything that we missed that you want to want us to talk about or cover? All I would say is that at the end of the day, Neo4j is at the core of our stack and we're really using it to do all of our intelligence in the system. Mm. And I just can't speak highly enough of that system. It's 
literally one of the easiest databases to just pick up and have fun with. I mean, as soon as you're out the gate, the installation is free. You get a lovely web admin where you don't need to jump to documentation. The thing the web admin just says, hey, let's start a tutorial right here. Click this button and I'm going to create a graph. And the data that they use is something very familiar to everyone. It's, it's movie, uh, movies and actors. And All right. <laughs> it's really actually one of those, this might sound very geekish, but it's really one of those exciting databases to query where you start to find out what does Tom Hanks have to do with Kevin Bacon? And I mean, that is a question I've always wanted answered <laughs> in my life. <laughs> oh. And uh, because of this, I mean, I can't recommend it enough for people to just pick it up. The data modeling is really easy within it. There are a couple of things that, that's worth mentioning with the data modeling. In a kind of POC environment, they look great. You've got people that are connected to documents and when you start to kind of apply it to real world data, you figure a few things out. Um, now, I talked about these nodes before, that they're essentially documents. And one of the property types that I would always want to use in these types of systems is an array. Right. And the interesting thing about arrays um, in Neo4j is although they're supported, you can't do index lookups within them. And that became a problem for us pretty early on. As you can imagine that even though we have an internal ID of everything in the system, well, guess what? Dropbox has their own internal ID of and course. so does Slack yeah. and, and so forth. And so, we really needed to store an array of all the ways that you can identify this particular entity, even though it's across different systems. And when we started to try and look up these values, we, we saw some big performance hits and we realized later that, well, you know, the indexing is not actually working on arrays. Mm. And what this caused us to do is revisit our data modeling. And what you'll find is that when you start to apply Neo4j and your data model that you drew up on the board and you thought looked fantastic and made completely sense, complete sense to the business, you start to realize you can't really do this in production. And so for arrays, there's a simple fix, which is you just split those values out into subnodes with relationships. Sure. Because the graph loves nodes and it loves relationships and it loves plenty of them. Right. But when you start to treat the graph like not a graph, like yeah. using it as a blob store <laughs> or putting huge amounts of properties onto each node, right. you start to realize, wait, it's not really built for this. Yeah. So, just a couple of things with, with that. With performance, I mean, out of the box, Neo4j, when you first install it, it's set to desktop kind of configuration. So, they've limited the amount of threads. They've limited the heap size. It is running on a, in a JVM. So, you can completely tune this and, and Neo allow you, you know, with their configuration files to do this. 
And there were some pretty instant wins that we got straight away when we looked at the, you know, tuning the, the heap sizes for, for the JVM, but also the, the web server threads for Neo itself. Um, and Neo, like all these other databases, there are hungry beasts. And if you give it RAM, it will chew it up. It'll eat <laughs> all the spit it out. That's right. And the I love about this. a RAM is more. Exactly. Yeah. I love this. I mean, this this is, you know, I love the, the fact that it does this because if I've got a dedicated box for Neo4j and I've got four gig of RAM, hey, you're the only thing on that system running. Use all the RAM, please. Yep. And when you're kind of scaling, the kind of last point I've got is that the query language that you've got to query Neo4j, um, it's this language called Cypher, and it's, it's pretty exciting because it just within the last two weeks, it's actually been released as the de facto query language for graphs. So it's completely gone open source. Wow. And so other graph databases like Titan and OrientDB and they can start to use Cypher because, to be honest, it is one of the more intuitive out of the options that you have. For example, Gremlin is another one that you have. It's just not as nice as Cypher. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing with Cypher and performance is that if you get any Cypher query that you have in the system, all you have to do is put the word profile in front of it mm-hmm. And it will build you kind of an expression tree of all the calls that it's going to make to the underlying Java API. And it's going to tell you about if it's going to do a table scan or an index lookup or, I mean, this is, I just applaud Neo4j for this because it, when it comes to profiling, sometimes it's not the best supported thing in, in lots of other systems. So use profiling. That would be my suggestion to figure out these kind of expensive queries. Awesome. Tim, it's been great. Hours flown by. I, I could actually talk about this for at least another half an hour. Love it. Thank you. All right. And uh, I have downloaded Clued In. I've, I've signed up, and we're going to take it for a test drive. And until then, next time, we'll see you, our friends. Bye-bye. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got